Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Hey everyone. Back in 2017, I made a trip to New York City. My plan was to do five podcasts in seven days. This was when life was life, where you could sit in a room with strangers and just talk. I remember sleeping on my friend Charles's couch, shuttling myself across the city on public transit and by foot. I remember complaining about the hustle and bustle of the city and all the people in it. And now I'm in a closet alone, recording an introduction for a podcast, missing all those same people what I wouldn't do to be mildly inconvenienced on an overcrowded train. Nevertheless, one of those forementioned New York episodes was with writer and podcaster Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm's popular podcast, Revisionist History, has just returned for season five. You've likely heard the show, or at the very least, heard of the show. It's a program that re-examines an event, person, or idea from the past, something overlooked something misunderstood. Before the podcast, he was primarily a writer. His words appeared in The New Yorker, The Washington Post, and, most notably, in several best-selling books. The Tipping Point, Blink, Outliers, David, and Goliath. His latest book is called Talking to Strangers. It focuses on something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Strangers. Like the strangers on that overcrowded train in New York. The pandemic has forced all of us into isolation. And yet, as we emerge, I wonder about the relationship 
we will have with one another, with those we don't know. This week, Malcolm shares his ideas and findings on that very subject. We also discuss growing up in Canada, cancel culture, free speech, the dangers of Twitter, his thoughts on George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, the defund police movement, and much more. Before we get into this, I want to note, Malcolm has his detractors. But what I love most about him, something I think his critics often overlook, is his willingness to process ideas publicly. To be right or wrong, publicly. It takes a certain kind of irrepressible spirit to do that work, to ask and answer questions aloud. He's done this for 30 years, including today, on this very show. I thank him for that. It's been three years since we last spoke on a podcast. A lot has changed since then. Yes, that's fair to say. <laughs> yeah, I think that that could be said about anyone over the last three years, but yes. Yeah, I, I didn't think it was specific or exclusive to us. Your latest season of Revisionist History, it seems to be about our emotional attachment to objects and rituals and how those objects and rituals betray us. And to begin, I wanted to start with this Proust quote. He wrote, Poets claim that we recapture for a moment the self we were long ago when we enter some house or garden in which we used to live in our youth. But these are most hazardous pilgrimages, which end as often in disappointment as in success. It is in ourselves that we should rather seek to find those fixed places contemporaneous with different years. This, to me, seems to be the heart of your new season. I'm the worst person to ask this question because the, the problem is when you get immersed in a season like this, you, you completely lose sight of the forest. I'm all trees right now. I have this vague sense that I have been exploring this idea, but I, I don't have anywhere near the distance to, to be able to kind of conceptualize it. I just know that it kept popping up. And most powerfully, by the way, in the last episode of the season, which is very explicitly deals with memories and what we do with them. And I think once I have time to kind of think about the last season more, everything will become clear. I do think there's something in that quote that is of real relevance. Your response basically is, that could be great, but at this current juncture, I can't really comment on that. Well, it's an odd thing. You know, we always ask writers, creators, whatever, to be the foremost authority on their own work. And I actually think I can't be the foremost authority on my own work for the reasons that I was just elaborating, but also more, like, because I don't know how it's being received by people who weren't intimately involved with its creation. And, you know, I'm hopelessly biased in my understanding by a million things that have nothing to do with the work itself, right? Like, sometimes you, you, do, a, you do a podcast episode or write a book, and you meet someone and interview them in the course of that, and you fall in love with that person. 
So everything that person says and every part of the work that has to deal with that person, you love irrationally. But the reader or the listener didn't meet that person. They're not in love with them. They look at it completely free of the disabling effect of my affection. So I trust them more. I'm the one who's biased. You know, the, I'm the one who has all these complicated feelings. They don't. They're just listening to the work. This kind of ties into talking with strangers. The central premise is that you would think more information about someone, in your case, more information about yourself, would make you a stronger authority on the subject of yourself. But in fact, the opposite proves to be true. Yes. I read a book maybe 20 years ago now by Timothy Wilson. It was called Strangers to Ourselves. And it, that was his thesis, that no one is less of an authority on the self than the self. And that's kind of informed me. I've been gradually pushing towards a position of kind of self-nihilism ever since. And talking to strangers is a version of that. It is, you know, it's like, you think you know the stranger. You, you actually don't. You should probably give up trying. You should probably recognize it's pointless. <laughs> you should probably adjust your life around the fact that this person you've run into is unknowable. So I, I'm simply adding lists of the unknowableness. I actually have, in another episode that hasn't run yet, it's about where I go back and I interview all the assistants I ever hired. Oh, great. And attempt to see whether there's any kind of unifying theory behind my decision to hire them. What it turns into is a kind of case for nihilism, for just randomly hiring because you don't know anything and you can't know anything. And this is, this is becoming more and more of my position on life, which is you can't know anything, you should just give up. You previously held a, a stance of vague optimism about life, and I'm, I'm sad to see that it's, it's, it's sort of calcified. No. Sam, Sam, let me correct you on this. Please. You're assuming that nihilism is a form of pessimism. And I would say the opposite. In fact, the episode in question I'm talking about is, it's called Hamlet is Wrong, which is a phrase that was the favorite phrase of a brilliant philosopher and economist um, named Albert O. Hirschman, who was one of my favorite intellectuals of the 20th century. And Hirschman went around saying, Hamlet's wrong, by which he meant, Hamlet was someone who did not know, you know, to be or not to be, that's the question. He was hopelessly drowning in doubt. And as a result, he could do nothing, right? And Hirschman said, no, 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 Hamlet's wrong. When you're drowning in doubt, you can do whatever you want, right? If you don't know the outcome of any of your decisions, you're free to choose whichever one. Once you accept the fact that doorway number, whatever's behind doorway number A is unknown and whatever behind doorway number B is unknown, it doesn't matter which doorway you pick. Just pick a doorway, right? That was, that was Hirschman's point. And so he said Hamlet's wrong. And he believed that the position of the doubter is the optimistic, is the, and not optimistic, is actually not strong enough, is the position of freedom. And Hirschman lived that life. He's just an economist who lives the most insane, swashbuckling, adventurous life because he believed Hamlet was wrong. I believe Hamlet was wrong. And so you have that freedom. I have that freedom. I think I know where this comes from. And this is my Gladwellian grand unified theory. Yeah. Your freedom comes in part because you were a troublemaking teenager. And I want to go to this incident of you as a teenager, which you have told many times, but I'm going to relay to people who don't know it. You and your friends 
brought roughly 350 high school students on school buses to City Hall. Was it a political reason? Was it a grand cultural stand that you were taking? No. The reason is that you were protesting the transfer of Principal Roger Melkin. You marched half a mile during school hours down Main Street. These students carried two signs, one that read, Hell no, Melkin won't go. The other, would you like to put it in? There were several. There was um, an attack on the school board president, whose name was Wollstonecroft, and we had just read, I think, King Lear. Is this King Lear? So we had one sign which said, Wollstonecroft, bloody scepter tyrant, (laughs) which I still laugh at. So ridiculous. You still have that photo somewhere in your office, right? I do, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. It's a central, it's, a, it's an iconic photo. <laughs> it's an iconic photo. <laughs> in my life it is, yeah. It's when I marched on City Hall. Yes, no, no, it's, it's iconic for you, but the way you said it made it feel like it was like in the, the Met. Like a civil rights photo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, yeah, yeah, no, 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 it's not like... That was your John Lewis and Selma, yes. No, exactly. Yes, I'm not marching across the bridge in Selma. Yes. It's, yeah. Rest in peace. But because it's Canada... No one got upset about this. There was not a single consequence to your actions. There was no punishment, no suspension, no expulsion, not even like a stern talking to. Now, you've told this story before, and I've always enjoyed this story. Imagining you and your William F. Buckley loving friends causing well-intentioned, slightly ironic mischief. But then you took 350 students on school buses during school hours, 30 miles away from your high school. No consequences. And I wondered about the kind of weightlessness of those actions, the freedom to make an intellectual and political, if silly statement freely without recourse. And I wondered if you thought about those formative years how it has shaped your thinking now. It's interesting. Not only, by the way, there was no, there were no repercussions. It wasn't merely the absence of reper- repercussions. It was the presence of positive reinforcement. So the teachers were greatly amused by this. Not a single parent complained. 350 kids, so that's 700 parents. Not a single one thought this was a bad idea or a crazy idea. My mom thought it was hilarious. My father told the story at dinner parties for years after. And the principal himself, but understand that we were, we took, we essentially took a third of the school out of school in midday without clearing this with any higher up, any teacher, anyone in the administration, <laughs> loaded them on buses. <laughs> and everyone thought it was fantastic. Like, so, no, I think actually, this is actually a really good, I think your point is very well taken. To grow up in an atmosphere where rebellion is consequenceless uh, is a wonderful thing. I mean, my mom, who is really the, she's the key person in all of this. Once after, a, I, we, did, we did multiple stunts like this in high school. And once after one of them, the guidance counselor called my mom just to inform her of what was happening. And my mom gave the guidance counselor a talking to, and she said, I would be worried about my son if he were not rebellious. In other words, my my mom was very clear that this, in her mind, this was normal, healthy behavior. I still think of mild rebellion 
as being normal, healthy behavior. It's what human beings are supposed to do, right? You're, you're not supposed to be placid and dormant. You're supposed to be active in the world and to engage with it. Um, and when you're that age, that's this is what engagement looks like. But I wonder about the ability to, to act and to think out loud and the ease in which you were able to do that, how it affects how you think out loud now, which is coincidentally your job. I think people are overly concerned with the consequences of disruptive speech or innovative speech. Sometimes people say, well, you'll, if you say that, you'll get in trouble. And my position is never, that's fine. I don't mind getting in trouble. My position is, is always, oh, we won't get in trouble. It's funny. So I still have the Canadian response. It's not that I consider myself brave. There are a category of people who engage in brave speech. I don't believe that what I do is brave speech. I just don't believe that to, for most things that may be a little bit provocative, there are real consequences. I don't believe that someone who's angry, if you get make someone angry on, on Twitter, to my mind, that's not a real consequence. That's just an artifact of a unnecessarily efficient communication structure that we've evolved in the 21st century where you can actually hear from everyone. I actually think people, most people are willing to entertain, will happily entertain contrary notions, so long as they're presented with a certain amount of grace or respect or um, seriousness. I mean, that's the whole point of revisionist history. At least half of the episodes of revisionist history are, they're goofs in the best sense of the word. I'm playing with an idea and I'm being a little, I'm being deliberately, sometimes like to play it being a little outlandish. And people understand the spirit in which it's done. We don't get, I don't get, I've never been denounced over something I did on, not really. I mean, maybe when I went after Bowdoin, but of course the Bowdoin people are gonna get upset if I go after Bowdoin. I mean, that goes without saying. Also that proved my point about Bowdoin. So I was like happy to see them get upset. <laughs> and I think one of the things that troubles me about the present intellectual climate is people's belief that there are, that whatever consequences out there are out there to, to innovative speech are um, overwhelming. And I just think, it's not true. I'm thinking about the letter you co-signed. Oh, the letter. A letter on justice and open debate. It appeared on Harper's website. I think it will appear in print in October. Uh, I'm going to quote a passage from it. The free exchange of information and ideas, the lifeblood of a liberal society, is daily becoming more constricted. While we have come to expect this on the radical right, censorness is also spreading more widely in our culture. An intolerance of opposing views, a vogue for public shaming and ostracism, and the tendency to dissolve complex policy issues in a blinding moral certainty. We uphold the value of robust and even caustic counterspeech from all quarters, but it is now all too common to hear calls for swift and severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought. More troubling still, institutional leaders, in a spirit of panic damage control, are delivering hasty and disproportionate punishments instead of considered reforms. This is very much what we're talking about in terms of what the climate looks like. You said, oh, this letter, what is that about? Well, I have mixed feelings about the letter. The problem with the letter is it's sort of, it's a bit of a doofus letter. 
it's in this kind of like pretentious, stilted language. This doesn't express itself very well. It's got more than a little bit of kind of pomposity. It exaggerates the threat to free speech. I mean, the very existence of the letter is proof. It negates the point of the letter. Nonetheless, I signed it and happily signed it because I endorsed the spirit of it. As imperfect as it was, my version of the letter is everyone should just chill, which is my basic position on all this. So to the extent the letter said everyone should just chill, I was happy with it. Would I have preferred a letter which simply said in one sentence, everyone should just chill? Yes, I would have been the first to sign such a letter. And then I found the resulting internet controversy over the letter so deeply hilarious. I can't remember being as genuinely entertained by the absurdity of a reaction on both sides, by the way. The whole thing... The whole thing just descended into complete and utter absurdity within 24 hours. But it started from a serious argument about something that is important. And it did descend into all kinds of things. And, and I, for the sake of context, I will quote from one of those things. This is from Hannah Georgis, a staff writer at The Atlantic. She wrote, What is the value of a debate that considers some human lives mainly as theoretical quandaries? Statements like the Harper's letter rely on a key assumption that the romanticized concept of open debate is inherently democratic or even open at all. But the brief and ambiguous Harper's letter does not convey the complexity of the forces shaping open discourse today. Who has most often shared their ideas with impunity? Who is discouraged, even banned, from doing so? Who cannot afford to enter the field of all because legacy publications such as Harper's still do not pay their interns? Serious grappling with these issues instead of virtue signaling would actually help foster the conditions for more vibrant public dialogue. Instead, in their rush to fetishize civil disagreement, the would-be defenders, in this case that is you, of free speech reproduce the same circular logic that has powered elite circles for generations. She's right, of course. It's slightly unfair. It's like she's accusing them of not fixing the whole world. It's like I mow my lawn in an attempt to beautify my street, but I don't mow my seven neighbors' lawns. And so the the response on Twitter would be, Malcolm mows his lawn, but that's not going to do the job. Street's still a mess. There's seven other houses that need to have the lawn mowed. Well, you know, yes, but... You know, it wasn't the aim of the letter, I think, to address the entire structural function underlying free speech. I think they were just sort of saying everyone, well, everyone should just chill as inarticulately as they did. But yes, she's right. I mean, and any time, by the way, this is the great occupational hazard with open letters is that you're asking for that kind of response. You want to go to the, through the excessive formality and pomposity of an open letter then someone's going to call you on it and say, all right, now that we're being all weighty and pompous, how about all these other things you didn't mention? But the very nature of a response is part and parcel of this letter. And, and I do think on social media especially, there's an absence of ideas being exchanged in part because uh, everyone seems to believe that everyone is acting in bad faith. And I don't know how we got there. Yeah, I mean, Twitter is a f- obviously a fatally compromised communication medium. 
So what uh, part of what we're doing is we're exposing the inherent limitations of uh, a culture of opinion sharing that's been organized around social media. Like it just doesn't work. So that's really what we're saying here is there people say things they don't mean in a form that doesn't allow them to to go into anything with any subtlety or nuance. Everything gets personalized way too quickly. That said, another of my complaints with the letter, and one that I chose again to overlook because I thought the point of the letter was fair and sound, was there is a little bit of a a historicism here. So every era has its own set of verboten topics and another set of topics which it permits robust debate. Whenever those categories shift, whenever we you know, decide to put some things in the verboten bucket and other things into the vigorous debate bucket, people who are used to the old paradigm get upset. And that's part of what's going on here. So, you know, the millennial and premillennial generation have a different, have different categories for what they'll, what they'll consider and what they won't. I think that's different from my generation. I'm not entirely convinced it's worse. I like to believe that I would have said, why don't we all chill in 1950 about communism? And I would have liked to think that in, I would have said it in the 1960s about Malcolm X and in the 70s about, I mean, like you, you name it. I signed it in what I, th- what I hoped was a more historically sensitive position, which is we always have this problem. And I think we always make the mistake of limiting speech too much and putting too much in the verboten bucket. I'd like to make the verboten bucket a lot smaller. Why do you think we do that? It's safer. You know, it's exhausting and divisive to have these kinds of debates. My sense is we generally regret not having them afterwards, that a lot of important work happens when we finally move something from the verboten bucket to the other bucket. And I think we tend to exaggerate There's a wonderful term that I think it's Dan Gilbert at Harvard coined about how human beings are bad affective forecasters. And this notion of affective forecasting is how good are we knowing how we will feel about some future event? So if I say, how happy would you be if you won the lottery? You would say really, really happy. And it turns out you won't be really, really happy. You're a bad affective forecaster. You exaggerate how happy you'll be. And similarly, if I ask you, how will you feel when you're When a parent dies, you will say, I'll be devastated and I'll never recover. And you're also likely to be wrong. You will recover. You overestimate how happy you'll be and overestimate how sad you'll be. And I sort of think that a lot of our concern about the verboten bucket is a failure of effective forecasting. We think the consequences of free speech are going to be a lot worse than they are. Imagine having a conversation right now, today, with someone who thinks that gay people shouldn't be allowed to get married an issue we thought we buried 15 years ago, right? Both you and I, I think, if I say that, we, we're like, oh my God, that would be appalling and we'd get upset. And I don't even know if I could have a conversation with that person. If we actually had a conversation with that person, we would find actually we could find it. We could have a conversation with them. It wouldn't be as bad as we think. We would still disagree with them, but it wouldn't be this traumatic event for both of us. And maybe... By exposing this person to a very reasonable conversation about this, we might shift them a couple of degrees. 
um, might hasten the amount of time it takes for them to come over to our side, because eventually they will. So it's like, I, I, I think we're just too scared of this kind of, this kind of engagement. But we seem to be scared of strangers. And I think that divide, especially with this looming election, seems to be getting greater and greater between the people who don't believe in gay marriage and people like us, who can't even believe gay marriage is still a conversation in 2020. So within the context of this moment and your book, what do you think we don't understand about strangers? The fundamental problem of our dealing with strangers is our own desire for certainty. So what we're struggling with is the fundamental ambiguity of a stranger's behavior. My mom is not ambiguous to me in her behavior because I, she's my mom. And so I, I have a kind of practice sense in dealing with my mom or my brother or whoever of how to interpret their behavior, how to make sense of them, how to think of them when they're not around, how to understand when they're upset or not. And I'm pretty good at that, and they're pretty good at it too. So we spend so much time in that unfamiliar territory that when we move into unfamiliar, ter unfamiliar territory, we want the same certainty, and it doesn't exist. And it's that fact that that's the fundamental problem, is that expectation we have that we can turn the stranger quickly into an intimate. And with all the ramifications that come with that, that the stranger can then be subject to the same accurate analysis as an intimate is. It's really hard to turn that off because, as I point out in the book, the constant presence of strangers in our life is an insanely modern phenomenon. It just was not happening 300 years ago or for millions of years before that. And so it's a kind of, this is one of those little quirks of human development that we're having to deal with. The opening of the book starts with the case of Sandra Bland. You know, it's a young black woman from Chicago and a young white man from Texas. One is armed, one is not. And this is more personal than, than about the book, but I wondered how you were grappling with the last two, three months around this sort of larger conversation of race and policing, especially in the aftermath of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor? Well, if you remember in my book, Blink, the whole argument of the book builds up to the final chapter, which is about the shooting of Amadou Diallo by the NYPD. Young black man killed with, I think they shot him 43 times as he was putting his hand in his pocket to show them his ID. You know, I've really written two books that are framed around police violence. So the George Floyd thing, part of me was, in one sense, you know, as I say in the book, the book was a kind of cry not to forget Sandra Bland, because I was convinced we were going to forget her. So in one sense, George Floyd proved me wrong, that we're no longer willing to sweep these cases under a rug. And that's enormous. So in that sense, it was enormously comforting. At the same time, I was gratified as well by the willingness of people to think about responding to this in systemic terms. It did not turn into an argument about Chauvin or however he pronounces his name. It turned into an argument about policing, as it should have. You know, if 20 years ago, after 15 years ago, after Amadou Diallo, we had had that conversation, we would be so much better off today. 
you know, we have to start moving beyond the personal and start dealing with the systemic. The only place that gave me pause was I wasn't happy with, uh, maybe this is inevitable. I thought a lot of the anti-police reaction was unsophisticated and naive. But that's to be expected. That's what happens in the earliest phases of any kind of protest is you start out hot and angry, and then over time you you clarify what you, what it is you want. What felt unsophisticated? There are 18,000 police departments in this country. Most of them are highly functional, staffed by people who are honestly trying to keep crime down, who are plugged into their communities, uh, who without whom things would genuinely fall apart. I mean, Policing in this country is not fatally flawed. It has it has a series of problems. There is this, you know, in, in the Talking to Strangers book, I talked about a, a very problematic set of doctrines, tactical doctrines held by police. That's one problem. You know, we talked a lot about this, the failure of police forces to adequately self-discipline themselves, get rid of bad apples. That's another problem. The good part of the defunding argument was... Uh, we ask police to do too much. They're overburdened. They should, they're not social workers, but we make them social workers because we're too cheap and too lazy to adequately you know, deal with the homeless or deal with drug addiction or deal with, with domestic violence. So we just sort of dump those responsibilities on the cops. So there is, you know, Those are a number of different problems. That last problem, which might be the most important problem of all, is not the police's fault. They don't want to be social workers. They didn't ask to do that. It's our fault. And I thought there was way too little self-castigation on the part of those who were protesting uh, or those who were upset about this. And I felt this about myself. I, Where was I 10 years ago saying we need to, to divert whole new sources of funding towards dealing with the homeless and substance abuse. I wasn't marching on those issues. I was sitting in my house, like quite ha- I quite happily sat by and let the police, I didn't call my congressman and said, you can't keep doing this with the cops. I wasn't going to city council making this argument back then. No, I was complicit. And I would have conversations with police over the last 15 years in which they would say, you don't understand. It's really hard dealing with that kind of stuff. And it's not what we're on, we feel we're on the streets to do. Um, so that, that, that's another part of it where I, when I say not sophisticated, I, to my mind, that's the next wave. Do you feel like this moment activated you in a certain way? Well, like I said, I've been banging this drum for 15 years. That last little piece I was talking about where my response to these wave of protests was to point the finger at myself, that is not something... I had done before. So it, it, it did radicalize me in the sense that I became aware of my own complicity. I bring that up because in the press circuit for talking to strangers, you have this quote, there's nothing in this book, for instance, that is distinctly liberal or conservative, left or right wing. It exists outside of that by design. I don't want this book to be perceived as belonging to any one political group or another. In fact, a lot of what I do is a function of my apoliticality. Because I am not looking for political answers, I'm forced to search elsewhere. 
I wondered if the last three months made it harder for you to keep that sort of apoliticism. No, I don't think it did. I continue to believe that the problem is that the protesters in the streets and those who were reacting against them are still involved in the same conversation. There, there's two halves of this. There is, there's a genuine belief that police are play a hugely important role in maintaining order in society, and without them, we'd be sunk. There is another legitimate position which says that role is so important that we need to hold them to a high standard. There, both are proceeding from the same premise, right? It's not like, this isn't an argument in the, in the 1960s with Marxists saying the pigs are, you know, are the stormtroopers of the fascist state. It's not what, that's not what anyone's saying. I mean, some people are saying something, a milder version of that, but that fundamentally is not what the argument is. The argument is, what is the best way for us to reform the police so that they reflect our interests and do what we want police to do. And both sides are engaging in that debate, I think. I know plenty of Democrats who, who worry about what happens if crime soars. I know plenty of Republicans who are, I would venture to say 99% of Republicans who are honestly and overwhelmingly appalled by what happened to George Floyd. I don't, so I, it's not a useful, I, I maintain, it's not useful for us to use these labels. There are issues here which both sides are struggling to engage in. The personal consideration on your part, I go back to your own family history. At the end of Outliers, you wrote, my great-great-great-grandmother was brought at Alligator Pond. That act in turn gave her son, John Ford, the privilege of a skin color that spared him a life of slavery the culture of possibility that Daisy Ford embraced and put to use so brilliantly on behalf of her daughters was passed on to her by the peculiarities of the West Indian social structure. And my mother's education was the product of the riots of 1937 and the industrialness of Mr. Chance. These were history's gifts to my family. And if the resources of that grocer, the fruits of those riots the possibilities of that culture and the privileges of that skin tone had been extended to others, how many more would now live a life of fulfillment in a beautiful house high on a hill? I wondered if in the pandemic and in these racialized conversations about police brutality and being a black man in America, if you were thinking about your place in this legacy that you brought out here in this book. One of the arguments of outliers was how lucky I was and how lucky my family has been. You know, the last couple of months have reinforced my belief in my good fortune. Both the pandemic and George Floyd have the same effect, which is that they have exposed and exaggerated existing differences. I live in a little town upstate, and if you walk down Main Street, six months ago, everyone was doing well. Now, half the places are adapting and in some cases thriving, 
and the other half are out of business, right? And that's kind of a metaphor for what's happening in society. Like there are some people who are skating through this just fine and some people who are, the opposite is happening. And so, you know, if I thought I was lucky before, right now I think I'm even luckier because I'm in the group that has managed to get through this. So in that sense, yeah, that argument, that strong argument about how we discount the role of luck in our fortune uh, to our peril is seems to me even more powerful today. I always think about how family history and our ancestry impacts and affects what we should do and where we find meaning and where we find our purpose and what we're supposed to do with the very limited time that we have here. And I thought about for you, if you feel you're still sorting out what your purpose is. Well, if you think about my podcast, for example, which is what consumes most of my time these days, it has many purposes. Sometimes it exists merely to entertain, sometimes to instruct, and sometimes to, to provoke. And my feeling is that those are all interdependent, that if all you did was provoke, the value of your provocation would diminish. And if all you did was entertain, then what's the point? And if all you do is instruct, then people will quickly turn you off. So, you know, that, and that, that's something I've always felt strongly about, that these, the, the responsibilities of writers or journalists are best expressed in some kind of balanced form. And if you go too far in, the, in one direction or another, you compromise your reach in a way that may not be healthy. So I, 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 I remain committed to a balanced approach. I think you have to pick your spots. That, so that part hasn't changed. But I suppose those are, those are tactical considerations. Do I feel, I certainly feel that my efforts in my writing on to talk about things like police violence over the last 20 years have not gone to waste. So I feel like, I feel in some sense that some of my work has been validated. It also made me feel old. Um, I don't normally feel old, but part of me and all the George Floyd thing was like, you know, people were like, you should, you know, link to all the stuff you did in the past on this issue. And I did a tiny bit of that, but then I also felt like it's time for other, other younger people to like, you can't occupy the discussion forever. You have to kind of say your piece, I think, and then stand down. Passing the baton. Are you comfortable with that? When I say passing the time, I don't mean I'm going to retire. There's a time when you've, when you've said enough on something. You've exhausted your, and then I think you, you should stop and let the debate go somewhere else. You don't want to turn to someone who's been making the same argument over and over again for 25 years. I, I think at that point, you start to lose, the, your arguments start to lose power. And there is, a, you know, going back to what we were talking earlier about the Harper's letter, and that response from the woman at the Atlantic about the kind of circumstances under which free debate exists. I mean, I'm sort of reflecting that point that there's a finite amount of space in the public realm for argument. And I think you step up, say your piece, and then you step down because you're seating your, your chair to the floor to somebody else, right? That's the way argument works. You know, if, if everyone in Congress stood up and argued at the same time, 
it would be even more, I was going to say it would be chaos, but it's already chaos, but it would be even more chaotic. <laughs> You're an active runner, right? I am. What does running do for you right now, especially as people are cooked up at home? Years ago, there's this lovely study. I don't have no idea whether it was true or not, but it was talking about, it was this analysis of who gets colds. And they made a connection between the number of colds you get in a given cold season and the number of worlds that you belong to. And the argument was the more worlds you belong to, the fewer colds you get. And it has nothing to do with the physiology of contagion. It has to do with the era, this idea that if you're someone who has a church and a sports league and a club and a family and a job and a something else, something where you volunteer, that's six worlds. And you can deal with disappointment in one with the support and encouragement you get in another. And that protects your... It keeps your spirits up. And we know when people's spirits are up, it protects them, it protects them against infection. That was the argument of the... And I always love that because it, it's such a beautiful illustration of the value of diversity in your own life. Um, and also of the value of diversity in general. That diversity is not an obligation. It's part of what keeps you healthy and interested and engaged. So running to me is attractive precisely because it has no connection to anything else. It's a completely different world with different people in it who care about different things. When I go to track practice at my track club, nobody cares, you know, what I do for a living, who I am. Many of them barely know my first name. I mean... They don't like your books? I, it never comes up. They, they, it, that's not the point. The point is they know me as a runner, right? It's like, oh... He's an older dude who still has some jets. <laughs> and that's like a really, really, really important to have people have a completely different perspective on who you are and what, what's valuable about you or what. And I'm the same way. I don't know the, anyone's last name. I know that I know, and I'm, you know, it's the, it is the most purest, most random cross-section of New York life that I've ever, I'm ever exposed to. <laughs> I'm laughing at the way you're talking about yourself. Do you really feel like an old man? No, it amuses me. I don't feel like an old man, but it does amuse me to refer to myself as an old man. You will know this one day, Sam, when you reach my exalted age. You will, you will get a great deal of pleasure from lording your age and experience over everyone else. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm basically trying to intimidate you with my vast reserves of learning and experience. Well, you come on this podcast twice, so it's clearly working. <laughs> <laughs> Forget old age. Let's just say at this age. What do you want for yourself? I want to stay engaged with people in the world. You know, I just want to feel like I'm part of something. Um, I do at the moment. I want that. So I want that to continue. I don't have any kind of grand plans beyond that, but, uh, I maybe unfairly associate that question with a level of dissatisfaction with the way your life is now. And I'm not dissatisfied with the way my life is now. So I don't really know how to answer it. I feel I've gotten a lot of my wants. And so it seems unfair to want more wants. You seem like someone who 
uh, could manage this pandemic pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I have stuff to do, and I'm a loner or an introvert. That's a better way of putting it. So we are. This is this is a period of enforced introversion. So it doesn't feel any different to me. I have the same number of relatively small number of social contacts I had before the pandemic. Um, so yeah, it's I I'm 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 in the category of people who are so far fine. You're a loner who wrote a book about talking to strangers. Yes, the best topics for exploration in books are things that you're not already an expert in, right? I mean, it would be boring if you only wrote about what you knew. So I wanted to bring this up at the end because I want to ask you, since we default to truth, what is your reading of of me to test out this book? I was just remembering back to the first discussion we had, and I was comparing the you from three years ago to the you. By the way, was it only three years ago? I thought it was longer. 2017. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. Um, I was just comparing, you seem, the first time I met you, I was impressed by your youth. And now, I don't mean to say that you are no longer youthful, because you are still, I mean, saying the youthful. But now it's like, I feel like you're, I'm no, I don't know. It seems like I w- the first time I met you, I was like, oh, I'm talking to a kid. And now I feel like I'm talking to a peer. Does that make sense? <laughs> Is it the mustache? Maybe it's the mustache. I think it's the mustache. <laughs> <laughs> so when I went to your house, we walked up the stairs, we sat down, the windows were open. Should have closed those windows for sound, but we didn't do it. It was hot. Yeah. You thought for an hour... Me sitting in your home, you thought this is a kid. You seemed young. Well, I knew how young you were. I've forgotten now, but our mutual friend had told me how old you were. And so I was like, whoa, that's quite young. And so I was just on my mind. But now, as I've said, with the gravitas that that mustache brings to you, those questions are no longer front and center <laughs> in my mind. <laughs> I'm so glad the mustache can keep making an appearance on this podcast. It's a good one. It's a good one. Malcolm Gladwell, thank you very much. Thank you, Sam. A pleasure as always. Have me back again someday. our show. Special thanks this week to Anna Naim. The latest season of Revisionist History is now available wherever you get your podcasts. Malcolm's latest book, Talking to Strangers, is available wherever you do your reading. And if you'd like to learn more about Mr. Gladwell, you can visit our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. If you'd like to hear our first conversation from 2017, you can find that on our site. If you're new to the show, welcome. Thank you for being here. I would encourage you to check out our back catalog of 175 plus episodes, including talks with Elizabeth Gilbert, Beto O'Rourke, Hassan Minaj, and Noam Chomsky. You can find those on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And if you'd like to join our mailing list, 
drop me a line at talkeasypod at gmail.com. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our editors are Andre Lin and Eli Weiss. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Our interns are Kiran Aftab and Patrice Lee. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Graphics by Ian Jones. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be announcing our entire August lineup later this week on social media. Stay tuned for that. Until then, stay safe, everyone. So long. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today.